0: And welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show, where we take a look at America, the existential threats to our country, and a deeper examination of the current state of our nation. Take an honest look at the current administration, and we translate Donald Trump, though he is about as loud and clear as anybody could be. Joining me today is a real star, rising star, Molly Hemingway. She is a columnist, political commentator. She is senior editor at The Federalist and a Fox News contributor. We'll be talking about her new book, Best Seller... Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. The book is co-authored with Carrie Severino. Claude, I want to rant a bit. Um, I do want to be sure everybody listens to our featured interview here with Molly Hemingway. Great interview the book, Justice on Trial and Kavanaugh. These are very important lessons that cannot be forgotten. Sure, yeah. Because uh, my takeaway, I don't know about your takeaway from the interview, My takeaway is she talks about Ruth Bader Ginsburg stepping down from the court, Mm -hmm. and if it's Donald Trump who nominates the next justice to fill that, it will be, she said, apocalyptic, Right, and the storm will be uh, unbelievable. I want to, one of the things we do sometimes on this show is recommend things for you to read, because I I read everything, you and I read everything. Mark Penn, who's been a guest on this show, wrote a piece for Fox News on Mueller and the testimony and the investigation. Uh, And it's the best thing I've read. It's the best summary Mm -hmm. uh, I have read. And I just want to read in part uh, what he says. Um, Having hit a dead end, the impeachment train is seeking new witnesses and new subpoenas to tie the president up in investigations and continue the empty threat of impeachment that has the support of about 25% of even the House of Representatives. Democrat candidates for president should be wary of all this rather than cheer it on. Remember, this is Mark Penn, who is Mm -hmm. the chief strategist for Bill and Hillary Clinton. Um, Anyway, he says, targeting political opponents through the legal and subpoena process uh, after uh, a massive investigation reveal no collusion undermines our democracy. Uh, it is a far greater threat to our country and its institutions than any ads on Facebook. Um, it, it, it's a really good article, and I want to just put a link up to it on our site. Sure, okay, absolutely. So yeah, you yeah, will yeah, send it around it. on Facebook. And There's something um, else, uh, another article, this by someone I don't know, John Bertke. Uh, and Mr. Bertke is, uh, oh, he's executive director of the American Conservative Magazine. He talks about a conference here that uh, that took place. Uh, at the National Conservatism Conference uh, in Washington about uh, two weeks ago and talks about the intellectual ferment uh, there and describes a new vision for conservatism. I-, I think it's an important article. I agree in part and don't agree with all, but I-, I think it's very substantial and interesting. Maybe we should get him on to talk about it, John Burtka. But the reason I think it's interesting is people have said that Donald Trump uh, has destroyed conservatism. You know, liberals have said that. Never-Trumpers have said that. Uh, and, you know, what will remain a conservatism after he leaves office in one term or two terms? I, I, I agree with this. I think he has changed conservatism. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's necessarily bad. I think it's got a new dimension. Burtka describes it. And let's let the l- listeners make their own decisions about that. They proclaimed a number of things at this conference. That big business is maybe a greater threat to liberty than big government. That's a, that's a shift. Uh-huh. That identity politics is a Freudian fraud, and nation-building is a chimera. Now, nation-building was a big thing for Bush. A lot of neoconservatives, like what I guess I used to be, supported it, but the new conservatism rejects that. In short, the aim of this new conservative politics is not more freedom, necessarily, it's not the first one, but strong families, resilient faith communities, and a thriving middle class. In economics, these policies would aim to strengthen the middle class, reduce income inequality, and develop an industrial policy to ensure economic independence from China. For essential military supplies. I can go on about that. China mm-hmm. grabbing up all these natural materials around the world right. uh, and uh, developing, obviously, its uh, technology. Policy proposals of this new conservatism could also include incentivizing investment in capital equipment and research and development, ending tax advantages for shareholder buybacks. This is part of the any big business thing. Um, Federal spending on infrastructure, supporting that, wow. Promoting skilled trades and vocational programs as alternatives to higher ed. Busting up inefficient monopolies through antitrust enforcement, activist government. Slowing immigration rates to tighten labor markets and raise wages for the working class. Holding universities liable for student loan debt in cases of bankruptcy. And raise tariffs across the board while slashing taxes on the middle class. As it relates to culture... National conservatives would aim to support families by being pro-life for the whole life. Policy ideas might include paid family leave, increasing the child tax credit, federally funded prenatal and maternal care, reducing or eliminating income tax on families with three or more children, and working toward a society in which a mother or father can support a family on a single income. America's Judeo-Christian roots would be celebrated. Churches and charitable organizations would be given preference in caring for the poor. And finally, foreign policy. Uh, National Conservatives' goals to protect safety, sovereignty, and independence of the American people. Regime-change wars such as those in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and Yemen would be recognized as imperial hubris. Anyone involved in their promotion, exiled from future positions in Republican administration. <laughs> Presidents who ignore congressional authorization for war should be impeached. Okay. Wow. Uh-huh. And members of Congress who eschew their constitutional duties would be stripped of committee assignments. We would command the seas and space, bring the remaining troops home, secure our own borders, and rebuild America. And then it, the uh, the essay here closes, Mr. Burke's essay, with this. After touring all 67 counties in Pennsylvania during the 2016 election, author and reporter Selena Zito, she's been on the show, mm-hmm. told conference attendees that the Republican Party is now the party of America's working and middle classes. It's not the country club party anymore. Right, yeah, we've talked about that too, by the way. Which means the party's future, as well as that of the conservative movement, depends no longer on Wall Street, but much more on Main Street. Mm-hmm. If national conservatives can build upon the historic legacy of Washington, Hamilton, and Lincoln, while being attentive to the interests of their new constituency, they might just get tired of winning. This reminds me of a book that was published years ago called uh, Grand New Party. And it was a call for the reshaping of the Republican Party along these lines, along these very lines, right. or many of them. It was written by Raihan Salon, who is now um, president of the Manhattan Institute, uh, and uh, Ross Duthat, who writes uh, a column for the New York Times. But it had many of these features. But if you want to see what the new Republican Party looks like, uh, go to a Trump rally. And I think this is a good thing. I think this is a good thing. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Joining us now is Molly Hemingway, author of the new book, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. The book is co-authored by Carrie Severino. Molly, this book is, uh, are you number one? There seems to be some dispute about just... What your book is, we know it's selling a ton, but is the New York Times recognizing it? Where is this book?
1: Well, we have been on the New York Times bestseller list for three weeks. We've been out for three weeks. Uh, New York Times doesn't actually make its bestseller list based on number of books sold. So we were very pleased that we were the actual number one book sold the week we came out, uh, according to the list, the actual numbers. Um, But we are just so pleased with how it's being read and purchased and and uh, people are really enjoying it.
0: Right. And, and there are other lists, you know, there are other, there are other publics as Shakespeare would say, you know, it's not all about the New York times. So con- congratulations. Uh, was justice on trial with, uh, with justice Kavanaugh?
1: Well, that's why we wrote the book, not just because it was an interesting story about what happened to Brett Kavanaugh last year. It was a very important thing that happened to the country, But not just because of him, but because of the very notion of rule of law being on trial of presumption of innocence. I think what horrified people was to see how so many people who should have known better were were just casting out presumption of innocence and deciding that it didn't matter. It is very important to take allegations against people seriously, and it's important to demand evidence for allegations of wrongdoing. And people just seem, too many people in the media or, you know, certain politicians just thought that making an allegation was sufficient to proving it. And that's not how our justice system works. And that is a really, uh, really important thing to make sure that innocent people aren't condemned. And it was very frightening to see how few people cared about that last year.
0: Can we talk first about uh, the allegations, the allegations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh? Uh, Were they true? There was never
1: any evidence to support the allegations that were made against Brett Kavanaugh, um, which became increasingly more absurd as the time went on. So the first allegation was made by someone who couldn't even establish that she had ever met Brett Kavanaugh, um, but she claimed that he had sexually assaulted her and she was worried he might even kill her when they were in high school. It was completely out of character for what people thought they knew about Brett Kavanaugh and was taken very seriously. Uh, In a matter of a few weeks, the allegations that were piling up were demonstrably untrue. Not even in the realm of possible. Even um, that there was the, there were these allegations that he'd gone on a nationwide crime spree that had gone undetected. You know, and somehow he'd been elevated to be a federal judge for twelve years without uh, without the FBI ever figuring out that he led this secret life of crime, including that Michael Avenatti said that he had a client who would testify that that he had led a that Brett Kavanaugh had led a serial gang-rape cartel that roamed the suburbs of of Washington, D.C. and Maryland uh, targeting underage youth when he himself was underage. So these allegations just got so absurd that people started to wonder if um, if the whole thing wasn't orchestrated as a part of an effort to take him down.
0: I wonder, uh, if they hadn't gotten absurd, if we hadn't gotten to the Avenatti level, to this you know national crime spree level, would they have been more credible? Would they have been believed by more people? Would Christine Blasey Ford have been taken more seriously by more people?
1: The allegation that she made was very difficult to either prove or disprove. It had this weird combination of specificity and complete vagueness. So she says she knows it was Brett Kavanaugh. She knows she had one beer and she knows that he uh, tried to rape her and maybe even kill her. But she didn't know anything else. She didn't know the date. She didn't know that location. She didn't know how she got to the location, how she got home from the location. She was clear on who was there, but all four people who she claimed were there denied any knowledge of what she was saying. Yeah. So I'm not sure if people would have believed it, but it was very difficult to disprove. and it. um and the thing that was interesting though was that Brett Kavanaugh came out of the gate and said it never happened yeah. so we talked with many senators who said that had it been a case where he he missed he viewed this situation differently than she did they might have gotten over it but when he denies that it even happened they realized it all came down to whether it had or hadn't happened because if he's denying it then he would be a liar and then he wouldn't be fit for the supreme court they did not think he was a liar
0: was her motivation here self-motivation did she want to do it did she want to come forward or were other hands in here pushing her to do it was the senate involved were other people on staff involved encouraging encouraging her to come forward
1: She publicly claimed that she never wanted to come forward, and that was written into the letter that she gave to Senator Dianne Feinstein. There are reasons to think that 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 might not be the whole story. For instance, the first call she made was to the Washington Post, which is, as a journalist, I like it when people call reporters, but that's not usually what you do if you're trying to keep your name out of a story. Um, She also scrubbed her Facebook before she made the allegations, almost indicating that she knew that this would become public. Um, She went along with the Democratic plan to, instead of put the allegation through the process that the Senate has for such allegations, um, instead hiring a high-profile Democratic attorney who's known for rolling out allegations publicly. Um, So there was contradictory information, but she did say that she didn't want her name revealed. And then everyone who was with her team set about to publicly reveal her name. So they were not serving her stated interest.
0: Was was his confirmation, you think, at, at the worst of it, in, in doubt, in serious doubt?
1: It definitely was in doubt. It was interesting where the doubt came in, though. The team that was putting the Kavanaugh confirmation forward never worried about the White House. This White House might have been uniquely situated to handle something like this. Uh, so whereas a normal nominee would worry that the president was losing confidence, this was not the case that they were dealing with there. The senators definitely were in doubt, including that some some were swayed by the Julie Swetnick, Michael Avenatti allegations, which was something that you would hope people of even moderate intelligence, would be able to see through. But there were senators who were expressing their concern and getting doubtful. And the fact is that it barely got out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, It barely got out in part because Jeff Blake was wavering, but he wasn't the only person who was wavering. There were other people on that committee who tried to pull... Uh, The nomination as late as the reopened hearing after Christine Blasey Ford testified, a Republican senator went to Susan Collins and said, let's go to the White House and get them to pull the nomination. And she, to her credit, said, I believe that we need to hear from Brett Kavanaugh before we even think of doing such a thing.
0: I want to follow up on on the Susan Collins thing, but uh, but let's backtrack a little first. We're talking to Molly Hemingway. She's the co-author with Carrie Severino of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. The support of the president was not in doubt. It was this in part because, interesting parallel, presumption of innocence. I mean, we saw this on the whole Mueller thing uh, with, you know, the obstruction of justice issue and so on. And people said, raised a you and cry. I did. Others did. You did. Wait a minute. What happened to the presumption of innocence? Uh, and it was a parallel situation, a similar situation here. I wonder if that was uh, part of the president's uh, resolve.
1: It absolutely was part of the team's resolve. Also, that they just were aware of how the media operate and how political opponents operate. And they had built into the process an extreme vetting of candidates. And they vetted them not just for what is standard and actually has been standard going back to uh, what happened after Douglas Ginsburg was nominated to the Supreme Court and had to It had to back out because he had smoked marijuana with his students. Um, They do a sex, drugs, and rock and roll interview of everybody, so they kind of know what they're dealing with in terms of what could come out. But they also vetted people precisely for courage, the ability to withstand serious pressure to come against you. And so they were just not, they, they were the last White House that would have backed down. And, you know, we do have examples of recent Republican White Houses that did not stick by their nominees.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, But this again, this presumption of innocence thing and and the whole this whole question of principle, that principle being at risk here with with Brett Kavanaugh, as well as with Donald Trump. There was another thing out there that I don't know. Did that catch on? And is it is it now part of liberal uh, part of liberal creed? Women must always be believed. Where did that come from?
1: This was something that many people in the media and, unfortunately, Democratic senators just started saying that if that an allegation is sufficient to convict someone, that is so, you know, if you can't figure out what could go wrong here, um, the whole point of. Due process is to give a fair hearing to allegations that are made, and to give a fair hearing to defenses that need to be made. The idea that you could put forth an allegation, provide no evidence in support of it other than strongly felt or you know displayed emotions, and destroy a person's life—that was what people were so upset by. Um, realizing this could happen to any of the men in their life, and it ended up really hurting the Me Too movement. It is important that we hold men accountable for crimes they perpetrate against women or just mishandling of women uh, and their relationships with women. but when you politicize it and say that you can you can destroy people's lives without evidence, you end up hurting that s- groove relationship between the sexes.
0: And uh, you know you're denying history too. I was writing senators like crazy in their staffs so I probably should have written you would have been more effective Scottsboro boys you know what I'm talking about they were convicted. They were convicted on the testimony of a woman. Uh, A white woman, you know, said these black men raped her. And, uh, you know, they they were convicted simply on on her say-so. Of course, it was proved false later. But there you are. and, and then that's not the only example. It's just a glaring one in American history.
1: Well, I thought we all had to read To Kill a Mockingbird when we were in uh-huh. high school yeah, or high yeah, school. It's yeah, a book yeah. that actually got mentioned in the Kavanaugh hearings yeah. and had also been mentioned in the Clarence Thomas hearings, incidentally, which you know, teaches a story of how important it is to not let allegations against you know, political targets be upheld without evidence.
0: I'm curious, uh, you mentioned Ginsburg. Did you know my, my involvement in the Ginsburg thing? I was Secretary of Education, and it came up. I was not drug czar, and and you know, I'm pretty tough on marijuana, and people know that, but I was Secretary of Education, and this came up, and my remember my question was, smoking marijuana, you know, we did when he was a kid, forget it, but to me, smoking marijuana while you're a law professor with your students, that's, I thought, that was a disqualification, and I I called. I talked to Howard Baker, and he conveyed the message to the president, President Reagan. And he and he agreed. I wonder if you agree with me.
1: And that was the view that many people had. It wasn't just you know if it had been marijuana smoking on his own, it pro- it might have been a bit of a problem, but it wouldn't have disqualified him. It was the judgment shown by smoking with the students that bothered so many people, and why that nomination ended up going nowhere.
0: Yeah, Compa- you mentioned Bob Bork. Um, I, li- I lived through that one. Was this worse than the Bork situation, uh, and, and 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 did the Bork situation, Molly, bring us into a new era of which this was just the latest chapter?
1: Right. People keep ranking what happened to Bork and Thomas and Kavanaugh. And they you know they have their ideas about which ones were worse, and usually people say the Kavanaugh one was the worst. Um, but I think they all were horrible, and they were all horrible in different ways. But the Borks themselves would probably say that as horrible as what happened to the judge was, they didn't go after him personally about his character, they just mischaracterized his actual views, which was a horrible thing to go through, particularly for an intellectual like him. But what was also important was seeing how they learned so much from that process. The original Bork was actually Rehnquist. Rehnquist uh, gets elevated to chief sure. justice, and all the things they do against Bork, they try against Rehnquist, including Ted Kennedy gives his famous "In Bork's America" speech. He does the dry run with Rehnquist, uh, and and I thought that was interesting. People didn't realize that speech had a precursor, but they the Senate was held by Republicans at that time, so Rehnquist gets gets through. Bork was enduring a Senate that was controlled by Democrats. And so he just couldn't make it through. But he showed also the importance of sticking through to the end, of forcing people to vote uh, if they want to destroy you, that they're going to have to put it on the record. And so there were a lot of parallels between what happened with Kavanaugh and Bork and, of course,
0: Thomas as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah, Clarence Thomas. Um, Now, Bork, one of the differences, at least I I would say, but I'll, I'll defer to you. Uh, both Thomas and Kavanaugh decided to take an aggressive self-defense. They mounted a self-defense on their part, maybe with the help of others. Bork didn't. He tried to remain above the fray. He was getting hit, hit, hit below the belt, and he stayed up uh, at the abstract law professor level, as I recall.
1: Well, even he had people who wanted to defend him, and he told them that they they couldn't do it, including his own son, who's trying to go on, on TV and defend him. And the judge says, I would rather you didn't do that. Well, that had been the precedent that you would never go on TV. You would never defend yourself. You would stay quiet and let the Senate deliberate. But what that battle taught everyone was that if you stay quiet, it's as good as being as just acquiescing to whatever they do to you. So that's when the conservative judicial movement starts understanding that if they're going to have a hope, they have to start fighting back.
0: We're talking to Molly Hemingway. She's the co-author with Carrie Severino of Justice on Trial. Kavanaugh confirmation in the future of the Supreme Court. Let's talk about the future. All right. We've had Bork. We've had Thomas. We've had Kavanaugh. If um, Justice Ginsburg passes away or leaves the court, will we see this again?
1: Well, People keep saying that they think it's interesting that the left didn't try these tactics against Gorsuch, but they did against Kavanaugh. And they think maybe that means that these allegations against Kavanaugh had some merit. What they fail to see is that what you just said, it's who the person is replacing that dictates whether you will have a really contentious fight. When Gorsuch was nominated to fill Scalia's seat. That's not much of a shift for people. They re- they already see the direction that the court is under Scalia and they think Gorsuch won't be a major shift. When Kennedy retires and he is to be replaced by a Trump nominee, that's when things start really heating up. They the the progressive left views Kennedy as someone who was a swing vote who they could occasionally get to side with them, and they want to keep that as a swing vote or better rather than get a Trump nominee in there. So they go hard. It's exactly what you saw with Thomas and with Bork. And so I think the next battle will be bad based on who is the seat, that is whose seat is being filled. And if it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it could be apocalyptic.
0: Yeah, yeah, it'll be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, maybe Breyer, you know. We, we we don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they, they would have. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean to be modeling here, but you know, with with the passing of Scalia, they'll say, well, whoever's in is going to be better for our side than, than Scalia, because he was, uh, you know, he was he was such a treasure to the to the conservatives. Uh, and then Kennedy, kind of a swing vote. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not a swing vote. You're going to be replacing. Donald Trump will probably be replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a conservative, and that'll be, well, you said apocalyptic. I said the the end of the world. But we we will see them do this again, right?
1: Well, that's what people need to realize. This has happened in the past. It happened last year. It will happen again. But there are things that can affect whether it happens again, too. For instance, nobody was held accountable for what they did to Kavanaugh. And yes, there were a few criminal referrals for making false allegations. But to my knowledge, the Department of Justice has done nothing about those. You have senators who violated processes and procedures that were in place precisely to protect Uh, people who make allegations against nominees and the nominees, and they received no punishment for circumventing those processes or Cory Booker violating committee confidential rules, which are really important so that the executive branch can share information. And the media, of course, gave each other awards when they behaved reprehensibly. So if you don't want it to happen again, you kind of have to know your history and you have to hold people accountable so that there are that there are actually negative repercussions for making false allegations against people.
0: What about uh, nominating a woman, um, as you know, strategically?
1: Um, no, well, I didn't mean to cut you off, but when uh, when the Kennedy seat opened up, a lot of people wanted a woman to be the nominee on the theory that whichever man was nominated, a need-to allegation would come out. We actually talked to people who made that claim to the White House. But I think that's a bit naive to think that that women will not, be subject to horrible attacks on them. And Amy Coney Barrett, who was one of the shortlisters for the Kennedy seat, had a brutal confirmation process where, you know, people were mocking her for her religion, saying, remember, the dogma lives loudly within you. And so, again, it's not about the nominee and the life that they've lived so much as the seat that they are filling.
0: Yeah, the vetting thing that you're talking about uh, now being so different, uh, I was vetted uh, a couple times, and I remember going through it and it being painful, you know, like the question, have you ever done anything that conceivably might be embarrassing to the president? Holy smokes, you know. Um, I, th- I thought of my yearbook, a college yearbook, admittedly, not not the high school yearbook, but college yearbook. I guess there's less excuse for that. But um, yeah, and, and that'll apply to both men and women. Yeah, I was thinking about Amy Barrett. And I was also thinking about someone from your neck of the woods, Alison I, do you know, Judge I?
1: Well, just that she's also someone who people pay a lot of attention to. She was on President Trump's, list of of uh, potential nominees and she's definitely one to watch
0: i yeah, know she's sure surely is i, I mentioned her because along with Jean scalia and laura ingram she was part of my speech writing team so if you wonder why i sounded oh, smart that's, that's why i sounded smart I had all these smart people hire well you know but uh, allison and i defended western civilization in a speech she and i wrote uh, at stanford but she's she's great. I'm not I'm not plugging anybody particularly. I just she, she's she been on those lists and she's very good. And the list is is still pretty substantial, isn't it? Isn't this the list that the people at uh, Federalists put together?
1: So we go in great detail in Justice on Trial on how the list has developed, how it's updated over time. And even just that, how revolutionary it was to put together a list. When Scalia dies, there's a debate that night and Donald Trump does something a little different than candidates had done previously. They would always say, I intend to nominate someone in the mold of Scalia. And he actually names two people that he would nominate. And it goes over so well that he decides to build out a list. And they started doing this vetting process during the primary. I mean, much earlier than any presidential administration has worked on putting together lists. But they put out a list of names, they update it and say that they're going to definitely pick from that list. And then they update it again, the first year of the presidency. So it's a list that's been used not just for the Supreme Court, but also for other courts that they are other court positions they're trying to
0: fill. I remember Molly reading that uh, list during the primary and saying, boy, this is good, and this was was a very good thing. And a lot of people said that's a great list, and you could pick up virtually anyone from that list. that We've mentioned a couple, but there, there are others. We're talking to Molly Hemingway, Justice on Trial is the book. She's one of the busiest people in Washington, also a wife and a mother, got plenty to do. Um, Subtitle of the book, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. If we can just hold you a couple more minutes. Let me ask you about the community that came up in support of Brett Kavanaugh. I'm in that neighborhood. I'm part of that church. Uh, Blessed Sacrament is our church we go to. Uh, That's the basketball team that what uh, people said he shouldn't be coaching the girls basketball team anymore. But there was a tremendous uh, lift uh, given to him. Uh, and 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 forward push from that community, number of women in that community, some of whom I know, some of whom worked for me over the years. If you if you get to be as old as I am, Molly, you know you will have had people work for you. You'll know everybody. But I was very proud of that of that neighborhood uh, coming forward and speaking up. Megan McCaleb and others um, sta- sitting in those front rows. That 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 made a difference, didn't it? The vouching of a lot of those women for Brett Kavanaugh.
1: Oh, it absolutely did. He actually. Brett Kavanaugh, in his first round of hearings, references the importance of his friends And he has no idea how important those friends are going to be as the allegations start rolling out. This is a guy who had friendships going back to junior high school and the type of friendships that were so strong as to be just absolutely commendable. We spoke with women who said that there were, that there was maybe one man in the world that they would have come out and defended as strongly as they did. And that that man was Brett Kavanaugh because he had built up these relationships over time. But it also points to how this was a national story, but it was also just a very local story when Gary and I would be interviewing people in the yes, community, yes. all in this like fairly small, few block radius uh, from people who had kind of stayed living in the same area that they grew up in high school, yeah. and it was just interesting to see what they said about the accuser and Brett Kavanaugh and how that differed from what you had heard in many media reports.
0: Yeah, I know that Catholic community is very close, very tight out here. And you should have stopped by for coffee. We're right, we're right there, <laughs> two, two blocks from the church. Next time, it was amazing to see, and very, very, very encouraging to see. All right, listen, I I, I want to commend you uh, and Carrie for the book. Uh, Justice on trial, the Kavanaugh confirmation, and the future of the Supreme Court. Uh, And there are lessons to be learned. Um, Can can I ask you one last question? Because I probably should say this in full disclosure. We have two sons. Both of them went to Georgetown Prep, um, the high school that Brett Kavanaugh went to. When they were going to a reunion, uh, they they told me that uh, then confirmed Justice Kavanaugh would be there. I said, well, all of you bring your yearbooks and burn them all. Um, so <laughs> I have to deal with any of this stuff. But there were a kind of competing yearbook problems, weren't there, uh, when it came to Christine Blasey Ford? Is that something you want to mention or get into at all?
1: Well, it was just interesting to us that every stupid joke that was made in Brett Kavanaugh's high school yearbook... Stupid jokes, like, right. You know, ...him or his friends, that was fully litigated. I mean, you actually had senators asking questions about these inside jokes that everybody has in high school. Yeah. And... This was one of those disparities we saw. The Holton Arms is the school where the accuser went and their yearbooks, which I have right here in front of me while I'm talking, are amazingly, uh, but they're just filled with lurid details about parties and drinking and sexual activity and whatnot. And I don't begrudge, you know, this was the 80s. They were making jokes. They They were being a certain way. But that was completely ignored in the rush to go after Kavanaugh and it was just that disparity that was very alarming to see.
0: Did anybody notice it during the hearing? Did anybody say, hey, let's 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 look at Christine Blasey Ford's yearbook? Let's look at what these girls were saying?
1: We actually report that both the White House and the Senate were being deluged with information about Christine Blasey Ford and her environment. They just made a decision not to go with any of it. It was uh, some pretty salacious stories they were getting and details, but they decided not to go with it because they knew they would be just crucified in the media. Was
0: that the right decision? Probably was, wasn't it?
1: I think they had no option but to do it that way. But I do think the media should have behaved better that they no they showed a lack of uh, journalistic integrity in how they covered that story, basically viewing themselves as the PR arm of the accusers and the anti-Kavanaugh forces and the prosecutors of, of Kavanaugh it was not was not a fine moment for the media.
0: Gentle chiding there. Not a moment of journalistic integrity. Not a fine moment. Okay. <laughs> well, anything <laughs> worse than that? But we'll leave it at that. Get the book, folks. Justice on Trial. Molly Hemingway, a star, and uh, her co-author Carrie Severino. Worth reading. Thank you, Molly. Thanks for your time. We know it's precious. Thank
1: you. Have a
0: great day. Okay. Bye bye. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. We'll have to leave it there for now, folks. We covered a lot today. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter, William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's gmail.com. Please share this podcast. Catch up with you next week, folks. Thanks for listening.